You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. This is a really interesting conversation and a terrific book. Uh, Jennifer Moss is an award-winning journalist, author, and international public speaker. She is a nationally syndicated radio columnist and a writer whose articles have appeared in HuffPost, um, the Society of Human Resource Management, Fortune, Harvard Business Review. And she has a new book. It's about burnout. It's called The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. Um, I think you're going to enjoy the pod. Um, it's around a half hour long. We just got off talking for another half hour after we hung up. Uh, so yeah, enjoy it. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Jennifer Moss, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. I am very lucky in that I have a great boss who cares about my mental well-being, encourages me to take time off. But my boss, and I'm name-checking her, Parisa Jalili, <laughs> suffers from burnout. Uh, I literally put the galley of your new book in her bookshelf <laughs> and made her find it. That's so great. So, the, so there's a truth here, right? Which is burnout doesn't just affect workers. It can affect leaders as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, when we've, I do this talk, exhausted leaders leading exhausted teams. And it's because what we're going through collectively right now is, um, is really interesting because we're all in that same playing field. I think, you know, we're all experiencing the same juggling, the same overwork, all of the same stressors that, and from, I mean, different in that we're dealing with it differently, or there could be different experiences that we're having, but it's a macro stress that we're all contending with, but this has been a problem for a long time, culture of overwork, you know, the legacy of, of, discrimination inside of certain industries where we see issues with lack of fairness and lack of agency, all of these things, these root causes of burnout have been around for centuries. So, you know, when you think about it only being the employee, it's impossible because leaders are in this strange position between, you know, the boss that they have to answer to the expectations that are higher on them. And then also remaining stoic and looking like they've got it all together for their staff too. Yeah, I, I'm getting pretty tired of the op-eds around the great resignation and trying to lay this all at, at people who don't want to like do the work. And it's like, 
No, I think they're standing up for not being abused in the workplace. That's exactly it. And you know what? Like no time in history are we really, you know, modern history, are we facing our own mortality? We went through a year of, you know, actually facing the possibility of dying. And when you're at work and your workplace hasn't actually acknowledged that to say, wow, you guys are all dealing with this loss of tradition, all these different types of grief that you're going through. Some people have gotten sick on the job and we still have behaved business as usual. Employees are saying, no way, this is not sustainable. I have had um, a new experience, a new new frame of reference. You can't just put the toothpaste back in the tube. I'm going to want more and I'm expecting more. And so employers that are stepping up, I say this is the Uber taxi moment because they're the ones that are going to disrupt. It's paradigm shifting right now. Employees are in charge. And unless they want to, you know, remain competitive, they're going to have to stand up and realize that that's a priority for us now. Our mental health and our well-being at work is, is fundamental. So let's take a little bit into some of the, the historical uh, antecedents that you talk about. Uh, a frequent guest on this podcast has been the social scientist Scott Barry Kaufman, whose most recent book, Reexamine Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Which was never a it was never a pyramid. <laughs> I love I love that a marketing executive yes. did that, so everyone has this idea of this pyramid. Yes. But it's a far more compelling thing when it's not. Um, yes. You have a very interesting relationship that's built on Maslow. Can you talk about that? You know, I was actually so blown away by this insight when I was read you know researching this piece is because I am so uh, such a big strong advocate for Herzberg's theory of motivation and hygiene. This idea that you know, at work, we need to have the table stakes done, stuff managed. We need to be paid right. We need to make sure we don't go to work and have a boss that's treating us badly or people that are abusing us at work. We need to make sure that there's fairness and psychological safety and physical safety. And what we've been doing so long with this wellness piece is getting, we're starting at the top of the, you know, proverbial period um, pyramid. And we're you know, acting as if we can solve these problems by giving people ice cream instead of water. You know, we need to be able to provide people the hygiene, the, the table stakes up, the nourishment, or they're never going to get to a place of optimization. You cannot take advantage of, you know, a breathing or meditation app if you are fundamentally exhausted every single day at work because you're working too much or you feel like you, there's inequity or there's social discrimination or, or systemic discrimination, that those things aren't going to work. So when we start to get the, the basic stuff and what I loved about Herzberg's theory is that he was mentored by Maslow. You yeah. know, Maslow mentored Herzberg and it was to say that, you know, he extrapolated that, that fundamentally as individuals at life, why wouldn't we need those same expectations at work? And we can't separate those two anymore. You know, and I, I say, it's not about work-life balance, it's about work-life boundaries. And we need to create these spaces um, and understand that we are a human, tw you know, 24 hours of the day, whether we're at work or whether we're at home or whether they're, they're, those two are together. And so understanding that their hierarchy, hierarchy of needs needs to be also assessed inside of the workplaces. Uh, one of our, our guests uh, used the term work-life sway, which I enjoyed because I like it, has a, it has both a funny quality to it, but also a realistic quality that, you know, we're always sort of swaying back and forth that just sort of seems to speak to the reality. But, you know, too, too often we get, you know, we're, 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 uh, we're on 24-7. It's, it's so easy to 
you know, I, it's easy to sleep with your phone next to your, you know, bed. And it's like, that's not good. No, it's so, it's so unhealthy. I actually instituted um, a wellness app on my phone that actually stops me from going into my phone at a certain time of night. So there's boundaries Mm. that I set for myself because I need to try to realize that I have an addiction like most other people do. And I'm, I have passion and sometimes passion leads to burnout. It can, it can be a prophylaxis, but it also can be a, a detriment to burnout. And so I have to use the, the tools around me to protect myself from those tools. And it works. I have to swipe a few times to, to identify that I really need to be inside of that phone. And I, I think we need more of these realizations that so it's sort of gone pretty far now. And we need to be able to pull back, but use whatever is in within our toolbox to be able to help us maintain self-care. So we booked this uh, podcast a while ago. Um, and just about four weeks ago, I was on a call and a client had asked us to create a series of burnout workshops using improvisation. So part of what I do here, I'm almost like a dramaturg for Second City. I, I'm like, go, let's go look at the research. You write in the book, quote, burnout is a we problem to solve totally true. And the Mayo Clinic has done amazing research in terms of treating burnout at team levels, that it's more effective at a team because you need all that support, which is such an improv thing. It's like, that's, oh yeah, I've got your back and have that support. So that's, I, that, that's not something I knew, you know, walking into this. I'm curious if you did walking in when you started researching. Well, I think because of my work, recognizing that the way that we were solving it with these silver bullet solutions and that leaders just really wanted to ignore the problem. They just sort of wanted it to go away. And so it was like, okay, well, we'll give them, you know, uh, something that is all on the individual. That's what I came to recognize a lot of the strategies and the tactics, mostly tactics, not a lot of strategy, but underneath the strategy was just these, like, here's an app that you have to choose on your own time. You have to manage it. Um, Just say no to your boss when it comes to work. That's really difficult. That's that's totally, that's so ridiculous to think that someone who is a single mom, this is her only job. She's feeding, you know, three kids and she needs this job to just be like, well, I'm just going to say no today, you know, to the workload. I mean, these are the kind of things that were, were provided for people as suggestions to alleviate their burnout. And so I think I recognized that a while ago, and that's, I think, maybe why the, the talks and the writing has been so provocative, because people are finally going, right, you know, like, okay, that's that's on you guys, too, to, to come back and support me, because I can't just figure this out by myself. And, uh, and I, and there's a lot of people that are come to me and say, I just feel so validated that, you know, that it's not my fault. There's a lot of shame attached to burnout. And, um, and that's a big problem for people to admit that they're in it and then to feel like it's not their, their fault that they're burning out. Yeah. And there's three industries that could highlighted here, which I, I have a relationship with all three. Um, and the first is the healthcare industry, which there is burnout before COVID. And there were, you know, the, there's a lot of studies out, out there. I didn't realize the problem with electronic health records. That was fascinating to me. Can you, can you dig into that? Well, we have, you know, this, and I found that really interesting and had been researching this actually for a few years because I did a couple uh, pieces of writing where I talked to Dr. Edward Ellison, who's out of Kaiser Permanente, and there was a few other physicians that I interviewed, and they kept going back to the fact 
that these electronic health records were there to to help them to be able to prevent the amount of time that they were dealing with inputting. But what happened is the technology was so challenging to use. You know, I think in the book I write about user-friendly, like Google is gets an A search for user-friendliness, you know, Excel gets a C, and electronic health records gets an F, because mm-hmm. they're so hard to use that what's happening is that doctors are spending less time working on what they're good at, which is, you know, <laughs> practicing medicine, yeah. and instead they're actually working inside of these systems. And you see this extrapolated where you see a lot of people, especially this year when they had to pivot so quickly, learn how to, you know, lead through Zoom or lead by technology or, you know, and that's where leaders really struggle too, but people just having to pivot. And if they didn't have very good training and learning around technology, their company was a bit behind, they were overwhelmed with the amount of work that it took to just get their learning curve up. And I think that's what's happened with, within these industries is we're not really letting people practice the medicine in their you know, field, like do what they do best. And I think that we, you know, we see that, that inertia is really creating these inefficiencies that lead to overwork and they're very solvable. You know, what, what uh, was suggested inside the book was, you know, um, by one of the physicians was get people to do the scripts, make sure that there's more AI that can start to, you know, understand in advance what, you know, physicians are trying to input. Like there's lots of ways that we can scribe this information without it having to be at the physician level. And then we need to think about that across lots of different industries, how we can reduce the load. Yeah, I find it interesting too that, you know, Amy Edmondson's original uh, work on psychological, psychological, oh, excuse me, on psychological safety was in nursing pods, right? So it was in a healthcare system years and years ago and recognizing this importance. Look, they're going to make mistakes. I recognize that this is life and death, but they need to acknowledge and learn from those mistakes, just like the rest of us need to. Uh, and to like try to push that out is it's da- it's literally more dangerous than the mistake itself often. I love that you use that example because the psychological safety piece is is fundamental. And you have these certain groups like police officers I mentioned to and nurses yeah. and those people that are being tasked to work these unrealistic amount of hours. They're in levels of sleep deprivation. And we're asking these groups of people to hold a gun to, you know, protect the protect or a knife to protect society. They have, they have a taser, they have all these things. And we're expecting police officers, for example, to work 14 hours, double shifts, and then still be able to sustain like these split second decision-making, you know, capacity. We have nurses that are trying to save lives. They're working in ER, you know, teams and, we have to understand that there, when you look at the data, it's not necessary for those groups to be working that long and for that many hours. And yet we just don't like to change things. You know, why are things so institutionalized that we can't change them? And I do think the pandemic sort of threw everything up in the air and made us say, okay, well, maybe these things should be changed. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe in finance where we expect you to work 70 hours a week, and, you know, the, you have these big CEOs coming back and they're saying, just be back in the workforce and people are leaving and they're seeing mass attrition. I think we're realizing, okay, well, it's time to, to make a big shift here. And yeah, it's pre- lessons from the pandemic that, that made that happen. Totally. Our, and our pre, our, the last guest we had in the podcast who was you know, advocating for a four-day work week 
um, really blames this like on the the industrialist model, which is what we are still working for through with education, which is not related to the science. It's not related to the science that we understand about peak performance. Uh, and yet, and yet, this classic human behavior. We're not, in spite of all the truth and the evidence and science, we're not going to change because that's kind of hard. It, it's it's really interesting. And when I've done the you know work inside of school boards, for example, it's unbelievable how hard it is to make change there. You know, just how much that legacy and that institutionalization in the mindset is very difficult. Even moving teachers from paper to electronic, that wasn't even going to happen for another 50 years if we hadn't had the pandemic because they were just so paper-based. It didn't matter. They would bring binders into their classrooms and that's how they would continue to do their lesson every year, just because, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But what if it is broken? You know, we have to fix it. I think about my son going into school at 8, 10 in the morning as a teenager, you know, high school, you should be sending those kids in at different times. At work, we should be thinking about, you know, biology and rhythms of people's behavior and when they're most productive and when they're least productive. Like all of those things, if you think about an organization optimizing their workforce, we have to be thinking about all of those those pieces of the puzzle. And if we use data more efficiently and if we were just more agile, I think we could see a, a much more productive workforce that is not burned out because we've let go of those inefficiencies. I use this analogy all the time when I talk about this stuff, which is like, you, you know, look at sports teams, look at arts organizations. They incorporate rest and practice, like everyday practice of the fundamentals. And that's what we, when we go into organizations, it's like, look, you, you, your communication problem might start with a listening problem. Can we make sure at the very least that people understand what it means to listen to the end of someone's sentence and not be forming their own sentence halfway through and how radical it is when somebody like, the 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 way how you how good you feel when you understand that someone is fully listening to you it's like that is the greatest sales tool in the world give that to your salespeople i i love that you mentioned that because you know i talk about empathy in the book yeah. and i and and that's so critical i believe to the success of any organization is is empathetic leadership and one of the tools is active listening you know i i suggest here's how you you know actually compliment someone you don't say nice shoes or nice hair or, you know whatever that is nice dress it's like you say hey i listened to you in that presentation that you did the other day you had two really awesome points. And I actually brought that back to my team and I worked on them for, you know, and actually took what you said and and actioned it in my team. And it's amazing what's happening. Like that takes what a minute, not well, 10 seconds. And the, the, the difference in the impact on someone by actually paying attention to what matters to them, because they probably put a lot of time and effort into preparing mm-hmm. for that, that you've actually taken it and actioned it. it shows that it's, it's important to you and you value it. I mean, those are the types of conversations we need to be having at work where people are actually looking at what you're doing, understanding it matters to you, and then telling them that it matters to you. Um, and we're, we don't see a lot of that. No. And, and, and you talk a lot about culture in the book and there's a uh, a thing you write about a company you worked at that was known for its great culture, uh, but you got there and it wasn't so great. I had this, it was sort of early on in my career and I moved into a role where I was supposed to have a boss, but that boss wasn't there yet. And so I had to report to someone that didn't really have any purview into my day-to-day life. And I remember we just sort of had to 
was baptism by fire and I just had to work. And I had a lot of people competing for my attention because we were an under-resourced team. And I, I remember it, it's like this big plan to be in there. And I just was going to have all of this mentorship and support because that's what they talked about all the time. And, you know, the, the advertisements that you get in there, you know, the big were the best places to work. Um, you know, storyline that they shared and the, t- and they talked a lot about having very little turnover. And when I got there, I just thought, you know, this all sounds wonderful. They talked about the space, the building, it was beautiful and all these wonderful things, but it was so aspirational. And mm. you often see this aspirational goal within the culture and not realizing that this is who we actually are. We're more of a smaller firm that likes really sort of more so, you know, compliant type workforce. This is how we like, it's always very controlled. And I think that you're okay to say that, you know, that can't be your culture and you shouldn't shy away from that. That's who we are. But know that when you're trying to be aspirational, you're going to hire people in that want to be, you know, live to that aspiration. And I remember that games room being, you know, full of dusty <laughs> ping pong tables. And, and it really led me to start talking about the fact that culture can't be dusty ping pong tables because it's a mistrust that is developed yeah. between, you know, employers and their teams. Yeah, you, you can have all the fun toys and whistles and all that. And it does, it does not matter if you don't trust your boss or feel that, that your team's got your back. Um, that's, yeah, that's who's going to play beer pong? you know, on a Friday afternoon, if they think that, you know, they're going to get fired for playing beer pong. And we've got this, you know, in the startup life, you had a lot of that where it was about happy hours and, you know, sort of this false bonding. Um, but when it really came down to it, you never felt like you could stop working. And, uh, and that's a problem. Uh, so um, you, you uh, cite one of my friends, Francesca Gino, uh, in the book. We're actually embedded in one of her classes at Harvard. She's an amazing woman uh, and, and really looking at improvisation as a, 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 a mode of curiosity building that, that muscle. Uh, and you quote, I think it's her, uh, quote, curiosity helped employees listen more openly and effectively and when faced with challenges, tend to maintain fortitude and seek out creative solutions. The phrase I often use is you need to replace blame with curiosity. So when you when you see a difficult situation, don't go to immediately to the, to the blame part of your brain. But w- w- let's let's get curious about this because then that's when we become problem solvers, and that's that's really what we're all trying to do at work. I love that you are doing work with her because that's incredible, and what a great partnership that yeah, is. Yeah. That's amazing. And Amy Edmondson sort of is the same way. Like you know, we don't shouldn't just get mad at someone. We have no idea how that or how they arrived to that decision. And then we also need to make sure that there's a culture of try in our organizations, you know, that we, we don't look at it as failure to, to make mistakes, that there's a lot of learning that comes from that. And uh, some really great organizations celebrate and dissect mistakes so that they can, you know, take all the learning out of it because they actually see that as a really exciting part of their development are the errors or mistakes that are made. So, you know, in the idea of curiosity, I had that um, opportunity to interview Martha Bird, Dr. Martha Bird, who is the chief anthropologist. First of all, I love that there's a chief anthropologist yeah. anywhere. Um, but she really says that she, you have to create these curious cultures. You just need to be looking at the semiotics, like, you know, what a button is that person wearing or what's in their background that isn't hidden, you know, and now with all of the background that you can hide behind, but what are they telling you in their language in the gray area? What are you reading between the lines with people? And again, if you have active listening, 
you're listening for those signs, those ways of understanding. If someone's saying, you know, I'm tired today, frequently all of a sudden, or they're describing some situation that's been troubling at home, or they're late consistently because they're trying to juggle the drive-in of the kids now into, you know, into their school. All of those little hints, if we're active listeners, actually lead to the big picture, which is you're at risk of burnout. And so how do I actually come in here in these ways where I can prevent it before maybe that person even realizes that they're burning out? It's funny too, how often in the different domains in which we work. So, so Second City will get hired for obviously collaboration, creativity, innovation, leadership, the, all those categories. One by one, I think I've given a keynote in each of those areas where they've asked me about storytelling. Um, and you, and that comes up in this, this book too. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised because the power of storytelling, of course, is this, is how, this is how we learn. It's emotional. It speaks to us. It's modeling. It's all, all that, that sort of list, but uh, having it show up as a, a antidote to burnout was, was at first surprising to me. Well, I think it's another way to queue up empathy and create those curious cultures where you don't go to blame. Like you said, the more that we can share our stories and pass on our show- stories and communicate to people in ways that they understand and ways that they care about. Um, we are continuing to inspire our workforce. And we have found that inspiration is a, is a prophylaxis to burnout. I think I mentioned that, but it also, it, it is this way that we can bond, you know, that we're seeing actually more uh, leaders in organizations that are faring well, that I found ones that have high empathy, they're having these sort of AMAs um, where it's ask me anything for the senior leadership. And they're saying, Hey, you, what you do you want to know? What is my story that I can share? What are you worried about? Instead of it just being communication out an email that says, these are all the things that we're working on. This is how we're dealing with COVID. It should be that that person is standing in front of you as a leader and saying, ask me and I will share my story about what I know, what is going on. And the kinds of relationships that are being built through these multi-channel ways of communicating is important. And I also think storytelling from leaders about their own mental health struggles, their vulnerability needs to be shared. All of those things create uh, an inclusive environment instead of this, uh, you know, I'm at the top, I'm separate from you. This is me. That's you. You know, if we can create a parody, which I am seeing more of, we'll see more, I think, healthier, you know, cultures that can talk about mental health in a much more open way. Uh, I'm sure you've probably seen the data that people don't finish books, like, right, they stop reading was it seventy percent? Yeah, I think it's actually worse than that. Fifty oh, percent. Really um, yeah. and, and I will say, most of the business books that I read, or the different books I read for this podcast, the last chapters are really just a. a they keep, they're saying the same thing over and over again. You didn't. You actually have some really fascinating uh, stuff at, at the end there. And having been someone who's experienced uh, grief and trauma, um, and and li- living in a workplace that accepted that that allowed me to be that person. And, and, you know, we all came together. It was very interesting. And and the thing I'd never heard of was cognitive hope theory, which you credit to Charles Robert Snyder at the university of Kansas. I'd love you to explain what that is to our audience. So first of all, thanks for recognizing that the last chapter of the book is supposed to be meaningful. I think after talking about so much data and some of the research, you want some hopefulness, you know, and some guidance for hope. And I, I really do. I am a, 
you know, a cautious optimist. And I do think that we're in a state of um, paradigm shifting change. And that is because I do believe in Snyder's hope theory. And really that is the concept of, you know, creating pathways and having the agency to get to those goals through the pathways that you've created. You know, what we have developed cognitive hope theory this year, whether we realize it or not, because we have had to create plan B's, plan C's, plan Z's. We have had to create different pathways to getting to where we need to go because that way that we used to know no longer is available to us. We've had to deal with weddings being canceled, proms and grads and, you know, traditions that we've lost. And one of the types of grief is loss of tradition. You see a lot that happen with a lot of immigrants that come into their country and they feel like they've lost the thing that is their old life. They grieve that old life. And, you know, we don't necessarily do a great job of assimilating that are, you know, of, of making sure that it's a place where people can come and have those conversations. I think that's what we need to start thinking of in this space of hope is how do we not waste a crisis? You know, how do we make sure that we didn't go through this in vain, that we aren't just looking at it to be something that we put behind us. We never think about again. Um, when you actually challenge that thought, you would forget all the things that were potentially, you know, beneficial to us. And it doesn't mean not giving the space to the grief. It doesn't mean not acknowledging that this was a traumatic year for a lot of people and it was highly painful, but there is an opportunity for us to be intentional. And that's what hope really gives us right now is we have to take this, this learning and all the bad and the good and wrap it up into something where it says, okay, that makes sense. You know, that's how humans survive. That's why we continue to flourish. That's why we continue to move forward. And even if this is endemic and this is the world we're living right now, that hopefulness is how we actually construct change. It isn't just this wish. Hope is a plan. It's an action. It is active. And so we need to be creating that in every single intentional thing we do as we move into this future of work. Very well said. All right. The way we end the podcast is we always ask our guests for a yes and story. So on the parlance of improvisation, when two people are making up a scene on stage, uh, they can't say no. Um, it won't go anywhere. And they actually can't stop at yes. They have to say yes and. They have to affirm and contribute. And that's in order to explore and heighten the material. So I'm wondering if you have a yes and story for us. I do. So um, I had a yes and story in when I decided that I was going to um, move to California when I was 24, I think. Um, And I was going to marry my husband in a secret wedding before we left. And we eloped, even though we had a wedding planned, Uh we had a wedding planned, but we eloped. And we kept it a secret for 10 years until we finally told everyone in our family that we were getting married. And I think the and was, is that the, the, the way that transpired in our lives, because we went to California and my husband actually as a pro athlete became acutely paralyzed when he was there and mm-hmm. he got very sick. And we had this moment where we realized that athletes get identified as high-performing people really early on in their lives. And he had all the psychological fitness training. He learned how to rebound. And in that moment, when we were in the hospital, eight and a half months pregnant with our second, and he was in rehab, relearning how to actually brush his teeth and move his body again. It was that psychological fitness piece, that post-traumatic growth piece that had him walking out of the hospital after six weeks. And so if we hadn't had that impromptu marriage 
me deciding to just go out to be with him in California, even though he had to be there six months before me, we just decided on uh, kind of in the last minute, I wouldn't have had that opportunity to see what really would become the trajectory of our life, which is passionately trying to get other people to have these moments after serious pain and trauma. And when you think your whole life is shattered, that it could be the most monumental thing that can change your life in a most positive way. So I would say that that is my yes and moment. That's a great yes and moment. Indeed, like the post-traumatic growth, which is the thing I became acquainted with, that, that idea that you draw power by serving others, which is something I think we were probably taught in churches and synagogues and other places, yes. but until you embody it, you don't understand the power of it. And it's, it's absolutely a thousand percent true. It is, it is meaningful for me. It is makes the work so much more important. And I think that translates because I really deeply care about it and it's been a life mission and same with my husband's. And that's been our change. He never went back to play again. That became what we, we were as a team. And I think that, um, yeah, when you're in service, it is the most rewarding place that you could possibly be. And then all the other wonderful stuff seems to come behind that. Um, but it doesn't matter as much because you're doing what you really love to do. Absolutely. The book is called The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. Jennifer Moss, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. This was such a great interview. Thank you so much. Getting the Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris, with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.